Well, good morning. This morning we will be in James chapter 4, and we will be looking at verses, at verses 11 and 12. That's James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And today's message is all about the sin of slander. So this shouldn't be surprising to us because James has been dealing with a variety of topics that deal with the Christian life. In chapter 1, he talked about trials and temptations and true religion. In chapter 2, he dealt with discrimination and a living faith. In chapter 3, he talked about the tongue and true wisdom. Then here in chapter 4, as we saw last time, he addressed fighting in the church and now we come to the topic of slander. So at first glance, you would think that this is a letter, it's just a mere list of ethical instructions. This is a checklist of do's and don'ts for the Christian. But that is not the purpose of the letter of James. This isn't just a, a record of moral duties for a better life. This is a letter written to persecuted Jewish Christians to show them what a living faith in Jesus Christ looks like in the midst of adversity. And so if you want to know what your Christian faith should look like, read James. It must be spelled out for us as Christians. Otherwise, we're left wondering, is our faith supposed to be private? Is it just some kind of mental ascent? Is it academic? What should faith in Jesus Christ look like for us? And what we see so clearly in James is that our faith should affect every area of our life, every department, because faith is active, it is alive, and it is practical. So faith does something. True faith works. If you read Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did this. And so if your faith is not working for you, if it has not changed to any degree the way that you walk and the way that you talk and the way that you act, then your faith may not be legit. And James talks about this in chapter 2. He says, you may have a false faith, a dead and a demonic faith. And so this is the overarching theme of James. Do you have a living faith? God did not kill His Son on our behalf and give us His Holy Spirit and give us His Word so that we would continue to be slaves to sin and live like the devil. He didn't do all this so that we would kick back, open a beer, and just kind of idly wait for Him to return as the world burns. Okay, he did all this so that we would enjoy him, that we would be transformed, and that we would then live for him. So he did all this so that we would not only be called children of God, but that we would live like one and act like one right here, right now, on earth for his glory. And so he wants us to be alive in Christ, not just a church, attend church on Sundays or a small group during the week but to have faith and to be alive in Christ in everything that we do. And so today, James redirects our attention once again to the, to the subject of vocal holiness. Our words matter to God. 
Our faith should influence the way that we talk, specifically in the realm of how we talk about other Christians. And so James starts his whole argument with a command in verse 11. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. So the command here is pretty simple. It's not hard to understand. Do not slander. However, we must define what slander means because we all tend to read a a command like this and say, slander? I don't do that. That's like a middle school problem. You know, this is something that politicians need to hear, not me. So allow me for a moment just to elaborate on this a bit. The Greek word here for slander literally means to speak against or evil of. So slander is when we report information about someone that is designed to intentionally hurt their character or reputation. Uh, To put this simply, it is talking about someone with actual malice and evil intent. So by definition, slander can manifest itself in various forms. Let me give you guys a few examples. Uh, the, The first one is what I call evil speculation. This is when we spread rumors or we make accusations about someone when we do not have all the information. Uh, Just a few years ago, I stopped at a a red light here in town, and I saw a childhood friend of mine walking out of a bar. It was late at night, and she was hanging on this older gentleman, and she was stumbling around, and I just couldn't believe it. Um, I was shocked. I went and told all my mutual friends. I was like, man, I can't believe she's, she, she must be a drunk now. She must be sleeping around with older, older men. Like, wow, she's really gone downhill. Well, it turns out, later I find this out, that she got a phone call from the bartender. Her dad had relapsed, and he was drunk, and he insisted on driving home. And she comes to the bar to rescue him. And here I am, creating this false narrative based on speculation, portraying a negative portrait of this poor woman, when in truth she was trying to care for the well-being of her father. And so this type of slander assumes the worst of people without having all the facts. The next is what I call exaggeration. So maybe a fellow church member confides in you about a sin that they're struggling with. So let's say Ron comes up to me, and he says, Jimmy, look, I just got to confess something. It's heavy on my heart. I got a little too angry with one of my kids the other night, and I just got to confess that to you. And I take that information, and I twist it, and I inflate it, and I share it with another person, and I say, did you hear about Ron? He's got anger issues. He beat one of his kids the other day. I'm not sure that he's fit for leadership. Do you see what I did there? I adapted the information to paint Ron in a bad picture. The next is gossip. This is very common. This is when we share information, legit failures of of other people to other people. So someone makes a mistake, we love to jump on that and shout it from the rooftops. People literally thrive off of gossip. There's like an energy to it that people love. 
And Christians are the worst about this because we can hide it in spiritual fluff. Okay, we go around saying, man, did you hear about John's divorce? Yeah, he's such an idiot. He could have done better. And have you heard about Leroy's kids? Man, they're very misbehaved. Horrible kids. But I share all this, you know, so we can pray for them. We, we gossip and we throw a little bit of hashtag, you know, for prayer purposes out there, just to justify it. The next is what I call outright falsehood. Okay, this is the worst degree of slander in my opinion. Maybe you're mad, maybe you're jealous or envious of someone, so you literally just make something up about them to damage their character. So let's say I'm jealous of Rick because uh, he preaches better sermons than me. Then I hear a group of people uh, talking about how great his sermons are. Uh, so I chime into the conversation, and I say, yeah, he's, Rick's okay, you know, but he actually plagiarizes his sermons, you know. You know, nothing in them is original. That's just an outright lie. No shred of truth, just created falsehood to hurt Rick to make myself look better. And so speculation and exaggeration, and gossip, and falsehood. These are all forms of slander. But we need to ask the question, is there ever a right time to share immoral or unethical behavior? Absolutely. Um, accurately reporting uh, immoral behavior of others may indeed be important in some settings. Um, as pastors, for example, it's vital that we report to one another the, the health of the believers that we're shepherding. Uh, who's struggling? Who needs help? Who's backsliding? And so on. So some settings are appropriate to share information. But if we aren't careful to contain our judgment and to maintain a compassionate stance toward the person about whom we speak, we could seriously hurt someone bad and place ourselves under judgment at the same time. And so your criticism of someone may be valid, but to report that criticism in a manner that is unloving or exaggerated or promotes damage of character is extremely sinful and detrimental. And so no matter how slander manifests itself in our lives, this is why it's so bad. Number one, it tears down other believers who were made in the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. That's the first reason. The second one is it creates division in the church. Thirdly, it ruins our Christian witness. We're supposed to be loving each other, not tearing each other down. Fourth, it hinders our prayer life towards other believers. If you're speaking against someone, I assure you, you are not praying for them. And worst of all, number five, when we slander, we are participating in the ministry of Satan. He is called the accuser. He is the slanderer. And he accuses the church day and night before the throne of God. This is what he does. This is why God hates slander and why he considers it, considers it evil. And if you're still not convinced that this is a big deal, consider what the rest of Scripture says about this. Slander is so high on God's list of wrongs that He included it in the Ten Commandments. 
in Exodus 20, 16, do not bear false witness. It is listed among the seven abominations that God hates in Proverbs 6. He says that God hates haughty eyes and a lying tongue. In Psalm 101, 5, God sternly says, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. That's a serious statement. In Romans 1, Paul lists many traits of the depraved mind, and slander is included in this list in verse 30. So it was slander that put Joseph in prison in Genesis 39. It was slander ordered by Jezebel that got Naboth killed in 1 Kings 21. Consider the slander against our Lord and Savior in the Gospels. Slander alone is responsible for so many broken relationships, ruined reputations, so much turmoil in churches, causing great conflict and decades of unforgiveness among families, churches, communities, and nations. Church, do you see it yet? Slanderous lips is not okay. The children saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, that's not true. Words can really, really, really hurt someone. Bad. How we talk about the eternal family of God matters. It matters. We might treat it as trivial. Some of us are so desensitized to this, we do it naturally without conviction. But may we heed God's word this morning. Brothers, sisters, do not slander one another. Don't do it. And just in case we need another incentive to not slander, James gives us a weighty reason in the middle of verse 11. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Now, this is interesting. When you slander, you're not just hurting someone's reputation. You're not just spreading a little hearsay. You are actually, in such moments, standing up, looking at God's law, and saying, you're not good enough. I have a better law to enact. Let that sink in for a moment. Now, a question remains. What law is James referring to here? The Mosaic law or God's law in general? Well, I believe it is the law that James brought up earlier in chapter 1. The royal law of Christ, a.k.a. the law of Christian love in the new covenant. So in place of the Old Testament law, Christians are to obey the law of Christ. Rather than trying to remember over 600 individual commandments in the Old Testament law, which Christ has fulfilled, Christians are simply to focus on loving God and loving other people. If Christians would truly and wholeheartedly obey these two commandments, we would be fulfilling everything that God requires of us. So speaking against other Christians is obviously in direct opposition of that law. Slandering others equates to slandering Christ's law of love. Okay, you are in essence, in such moments, crowning yourself sovereign, claiming to know the motivations and the desires of the heart, saying, God, 
I have a better law than you. I've got this. And instead of obeying Christ's law, which says love people, we say, nah, this person needs to be criticized, they need to be condemned, and they need to be shamed, not loved. So could you imagine for a moment if I was sitting in the audience of a human courtroom observing a a court case. So here I am, no law degree or anything, just a bystander. I'm not the jury, so I have no insight regarding evidence. Uh, I'm not the prosecutor, so I have no ability to sentence anyone. And I'm not the judge, so I have no authority to determine guilty or not guilty. And let's just say, hypothetically, during the trial, I stand up and I say, hey everyone, I've got this all figured out. My name's Jimmy Alexander. No, I don't have any law degree or anything, but I know what's best here. This man is clearly guilty, and I just know it, and I think that he should serve 10 years in prison. First of all, if this actually happened, I would be asked to sit down and shut up. Secondly, I'm basically in contempt of court for disrupting the legal process. Thirdly, I have no authority whatsoever to determine anything of such matters. And lastly, I'm totally disrespecting the law. I'm basically saying, hey, judge and jury, you guys are dumb and you don't know what you're doing, but I do. Well, this is basically what we are doing when we speak against other believers. We are acting as if we are the judge and the lawgiver. So know this, when you slander another brother or sister in Christ, you are, in reality, judging the law of Christ. And that's a serious crime. And not only that, but you are also breaking the law when you do this. Look at the end of verse 11. He says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So in other words, if you are criticizing other people, and thus criticizing the law of Christ, you are in no way, shape, or form keeping the law in such moments. And this is very ironic. This was the deception that the Pharisees and the religious leaders fell into in Jesus' day. In their zeal to keep the law and enforce it, they actually broke it in their pride. So in their zeal for the letter of the law, they forget the purpose or the heart of the law. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I saw Ryan uh, back behind a bush at the church here, and he was playing with a Ouija board. So I go around the church telling everyone that Ryan is into witchcraft, and he's basically a demon now. And let's say I do this with just a very evil heart. I do it maliciously. Here's the irony. By me spreading information about Ryan's lawlessness... I myself, in that moment, am breaking God's law. Did Ryan sin? Yes. Was I right about Ryan? Yes. But did I have any right to neglect Christ's command to love and then condemn him and then exaggerate his mistake? Absolutely not. I had no right to do that. And so as a Christian, it is your job to keep the law of Christ. It is your job to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
It is your job to be like Christ while we are living in the age of grace. But it is not your job, I repeat, it is not your job to play jury, judge, and prosecutor of it. If you try to take on those roles, which, by the way, is a form of treason, you are in sin. As you go around playing the sin police, pridefully pointing out everyone else's flaws, you yourself, by doing that, are breaking the law. You might think you're keeping it, and like the Pharisees, you can talk all day long about how much you love God's law and adore it, but if you slander or gossip about or condemn another brother and sister in Christ, your beloved family, you are breaking the law. You yourself are being lawless. Now, to solidify this argument further, James then points to God in verse 12, saying there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. There is only one, says James. There is no other. This is what makes God, God. There are certain attributes, roles, and actions that only the divine creator has and can do. That's what makes him God. It's utter folly for finite human beings to attempt to assume God's distinctiveness as lawgiver and judge. So let me ask you a few questions. Did you create the foundations of the world? Did you create the law of Christ? Was that you? Do you know the motives and the innermost thoughts of everyone's heart on earth? Are you all-knowing and all-powerful? Do you have the authority to send someone to heaven or hell? And if so, can you show me how you do that? Must I go on? Judgment and law-giving belong to the Lord and Him alone. God gives the law and God enforces the law. God is the sovereign king and He will determine who gets saved and who gets destroyed. He is the Lord of all. No secrets are kept from Him. There's no information that he's missing. There's no wisdom that he needs to obtain. He is self-sufficient, perfectly just, and he is infinitely holy. Therefore, he is the judge, not me. Now, this is both comforting and convicting. It's comforting because this means that I don't need to figure everything out. I can let go of all eternal judgments. Paul even says in Corinthians, I don't even judge myself. I don't need to worry if my Uncle Joe is in heaven or hell. That's not on me. It's on God. And it's comforting to know that one day God will judge everything and everyone perfectly. Everything will lay bare before Him. He will judge with perfection. He will right every wrong. The wicked will be punished. And those who are His, He will securely bring into everlasting glory. But this is convicting because this means that I can't judge anyone until the time. It means that I must stop playing God. I have to stop assuming his role. And what I need to do is leave the judging to God. We read it in Romans 12. Vengeance is his. And instead, I need to love people like he commanded me. Church, we are living in the age of grace. Judgment is coming. That's for sure, 
But God is being slow in his return because he wishes that all would repent and be saved. Peter tells us this. God's slowness in judgment means salvation. He wants a big family. And so in the meantime, while we're waiting, what should we be doing? Criticizing, slandering, acting like witch hunters, acting like the reprobate police? No. We should be praying for our enemies, uplifting those who have fallen, showing mercy to the ignorant, grace to those who are in sin, and loving broken people with full affection the same way in which Christ has loved us. This is our lane as Christians. We can leave the judging and the condemning in the hands of God. We can leave the gavel in His hands. We can focus on what He has commanded us, which is what? John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And James ends his whole argument with a very convicting and yet fitting open-ended question at the end of verse 12. He says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Quite literally, James is saying, who do you think you are? Seriously, God is asking us, what authority do you have, O mere man, to, to be determining the fate, the character, and motives of your neighbor? Who are you, O created creature, to stand up and act as if you were the final authority? Who are you, a sinner saved by undeserved grace, to condemn someone else and put them in a bad light? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, a child of God who is called to love or a contributor to Satan's ministry of accusing Christians? Who do you think you are, a lover of Christ's law or a critic of it? Who do you think you are, a sinner saved by grace or a supreme judge of people because you are so wise and smart? Do you realize that the primary objective as a Christian is to love? Yes, we're called to expose sin. Yes, we're called to discern. Yes, we're called to speak the truth boldly. But we are told to do these things in love. So don't ever slander someone. Don't slander anyone in this room until you have first spent an hour praying for them and weeping over their sin and have spent some time gently calling them to repentance and promoting restoration. Don't you dare put anyone in a negative light until you have first considered how much of your own gross, nasty, and perverted sin was placed on Christ and totally wiped out and paid in full. Do these things first, then come to me and speak against someone. And you will discover that you can't. Because in light of our own sin, and in light of the cross of Christ, and in light of God's role as judge, it's impossible to tear down and gossip or condemn another believer. 
Because it is impossible to condemn someone that we genuinely love. It's impossible to speak against someone that you are praying for and laying your life down for. So at the end of the day, slander really? It's just a red flag that you're in the flesh. You're not spending time with Christ or praying for the brethren. James is not ruling out civil courts and judges and human government. He is not discouraging healthy criticism or loving rebuke or productive evaluation of others. Instead, he is rooting out harsh, unkind, critical spirits that continually find fault with others. That is the teaching here, and we need to hear it this morning. So Proclamation Church, what do we do about all this? How do we respond? I think the first thing we need to do is repent. We need to agree with God about this. And if we are spirit-led, we need to go and make things right with people we've been slandering. The world has made this normal. Unbelievers speak evil like it's their job, but not the children of God. It's not okay for us to be doing this, and we need to repent and make things right. This is what God is calling us to do. Secondly, we need to ask God to change our hearts. This isn't a matter of just speaking less or trying to be more positive or, you know, if you, if you have nothing good to say, don't say it at all. Ultimately, this is a heart problem. A few tips aren't going to cut it here. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 15. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, te- false testimony, and then he says slander. Slander makes the list. So we need to honestly, genuinely put our hearts in the hands of God and say, God, please fix this. And trust me, he will. If there is anything that God loves to do, anything that God delights in doing, it is conforming his children more into the image of Christ. If you have a problem with slander, God wants to deal with it. And lastly, we need to be mindful in the days ahead. It's easy to hear a teaching like this and apply it for a week and then forget about it in a month or two. Whenever you speak about someone, especially another brother or sister in Christ, be mindful. Be very careful. Realize that you are a son or a daughter of God. You are an ambassador of Christ. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a royal priesthood. This is how the New Testament defines us. So while everyone has or should have a fundamental right to speak freely their minds, especially in America, your freedom of expression is not absolute. As Christians, you are not free to speak a certain way about your friends in Christ. We are obligated by the blood of Christ, being purchased by Christ, compelled by the love of Christ to edify the church. If indeed you are redeemed, your life is not your own. You are no longer free to sin and speak however you want. You are under love. You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. 
You are his prized possession. And he purchased you so that you would be a useful tool in his hands. He bought you so that he could use you as an instrument here on earth to advance his kingdom. He is your master. You no longer serve sin. You serve him. And so for Christ's sake, let us move past such worldly things and let us start using the most powerful muscle in our body, according to the Bible, the tongue, as a holy mouthpiece to build up the body and to proclaim the wonders and the glories of God. Let's pray.